Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode number 59 of the Eve's Drop Podcast. Today we have a very, very special guest, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, uh, a guiding light, if you my North Star, goddammit, if you must know. It is, uh, it is with great pleasure that I introduce to you guys, somebody you guys already know, obviously, Mike Sepso. Uh, he's a, one of the co-founders of Esports. Uh, more, more importantly, obviously, uh, MLG, and it's gotten us uh, 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 in a bunch of places. This episode, episode number 59, is brought to you by Old Spice Pomade. I use it on my hair, and I'm going to show you. I haven't used it today at all. Look at this thing. I need a haircut. Um, you got qu quarantine hair, dude. Yes, and, Do yeah, and DoorDash. And I'll tell you guys a little bit more about them uh, later on in the podcast. But this, po this is the first podcast that I've done remotely mike every single other one and i know that you you and i have missed each other because you were supposed to be in my top in my first 10 that i was going to do uh but it made it super difficult so now we're doing this remotely which is like the weirdest thing to me because <laughs> it's usually like face-to-face -face sort of thing yeah you know? i'm not used to talking to you without cocktails that's so. the other thing that's the other thing we're not <laughs> we're not we're not getting a little sip of something um how's quarantine over there i know that new york had it bad i'm, I'm sure yeah. it's still bad How's it going? Uh, it's been pretty tough. You know, New York's right out the window behind me. Um, you know, I've been through a lot of disasters and crises in this city, so it tends to respond pretty strong to it. But, you know, obviously we got hit really hard. It's been scary. Um, I've pretty much been inside for six weeks in my apartment. Yeah. Um, aside from a couple of small walks outside, that's pretty much been it. So it seems like it's getting better. Um you know, hospitalizations are down and we've got pretty strong state leadership and, but it's going to be weird for a while. You can't really, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do with 8 million people on one tiny Island. It's, it's insane. And what's crazy about this too, is obviously that, you know, New York being as, as, as big as it is, is also one of the leading everything, right? Any, any uh, financial markets, uh, you name it, yeah. like any, anything, uh, fashion, it goes all the way through entertainment. It goes all the way through. So uh, the, the fact that, it was that intense over there. It doesn't surprise any anybody. The fact that you guys are going to get through it, that's something that obviously nobody doubts, right? You guys have been through right. a, a ton. Uh, how long have you been in New York? And are you originally from there? I've lived here for 26 years. Um, and I grew up right outside of New York. Oh, my God. That's that's awesome. Where, where, where are you at right now? Are you at the office or? No, nope, I'm at home. So I, you... I, I've, been, I've been stuck here the whole time. So you, this is this is your view. This is my home office view, yeah. This is your home office view. What what <laughs> what what awesome building is back there? It that's the Freedom Tower. That's the Oh, cool. Yeah, that's the World Trade Center right That's where me. the where the wings are. I stayed at the Hilton right next to there. And yeah. I was I was uh Well, was, ne next time you can stay in this room. This my it's only my home office during quarantine is usually our second bedroom. So. Yeah. No, no, it's, yeah, I know. you've invited me a couple of times and I just, you know, obviously you know how it goes. I'm usually there for 24 hours and and I'm out. Yeah. Um Obviously, with uh, with with the way that everything is being shaped out, like the the podcast gets affected in that in that situation too, and and yeah. that sucks because obviously it's a traveling podcast. I like to have all these interviews in person, and yep. I couldn't wait any longer. Not only because there's there's pe I'm running out of people to interview, but more importantly because you were supposed to be in my first ten 
interviews yeah. because you had such a big impact in my life that I wanted to sort of get your story out uh, because you sure. are as, as much as you're a front runner, as much as you're uh, the face of the company, as you were with Sundance and MLG, you're also like the majority of your time is spent back, you know, in the, in the in the back hallways making the infrastructure work for gamers all over the place to be able to make a living off of the thing that they did or you did for now you I guess now you do that for businesses. Now you you <laughs> you're still in the in the background behind the curtains helping businesses thrive. Um, yeah. So so I guess we can start from the beginning. Um, sure. Well, first, we'll start with the question that I like to ask everybody every single time. Who are you today? Who am I? Yeah. <laughs> Who are you today? <laughs> well, uh, work-wise, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vindex, um, which is a new esports company that uh, Sundance and I started with two partners, Brian Binder and Jason Garmice. Um who you guys in the esports world will learn more about soon. Um, we are, are also through that back in business with our buddy Adam Apicella at Esports Engine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're we're building out a pretty big B two B business there to help, like you said, to help esports be successful. We have some consumer th- things coming too, and so it's sort of big, broad company to to take on some of the bigger infrastructure challenges that esports has since we've almost all been focused as an industry on the professional leagues and professional everything happening at the top level. Yeah. Um, hasn't been, you know, and that's all growing rapidly. Um, there's a lot of other stuff to do too. So that's what we're doing. All right, cool. And then then otherwise I'm a, I'm a New Yorker who's been stuck in my apartment for six weeks. So that's, that's Uh, also who I am. Texas, as I sit here today, as I sit here on a Friday, the first of May, at 3:20 p.m., they're opening up restaurants at 25% capacity. You know, like the right. wildest. So, so I'm, I have this this thing where I'm like, okay, I'm gonna let everybody who's been super anxious <laughs> to get out there get out there, and yeah. then in about a month, I'll peek my head out and see. Now, 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 I I feel like I already have the antibody. I feel like I've already been struck with the coronavirus. But it's not about me. It's not about me. Yeah. You know, it's about who I'm in contact with that I don't want to infect. The last thing yeah. I, I would feel like shit if. It, not even a family member, somebody, a stranger got, got it from me and he died, you know, subsequently. So yeah. for me, like that's, that's part number one. It's not, it's not a, a, I'm scared to get out there and get, like I said, sure. I already think that I got it. It's more of a, of, of a good citizen conscious choice of caring for the next man and or woman or child yeah. or old person. No, you know? you're, you're dead on. And just, you know, I can tell you the, the esports and gaming community that you reach with the podcasts from New York. Uh, it's, this is serious. This is no joke. Um, something like, I think at this point, six times the people that died in nine 11 right behind me Mm -hmm. have died from this coronavirus in the past six weeks here. More people have died from the coronavirus than people. Six six times more people have died from the coronavirus than died in nine 11. Oh, just Uh, in New York city. Yeah. And I think it's more than, than the Americans that died in Vietnam too. Uh, or I just, yeah, so it's it's super yeah. crazy. All right, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more serious about that, but we're going to bring it back to, to the beginning. Who were you then? Who were you when you first started your journey into esports? And obviously, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, like you are a co-founder of esports if you if you look at it in, in the grand scheme of things of a span of its life cycle, right? Because you were sure. you were there from, from the beginning. And mm-hmm. what were you doing at the time? Like how old were you? Where, what, what, what? drove you to say you know what there's there's something 
And, and who thinks that, right? Who thinks like, hey, you know, there's a business behind kids playing against each other, and pe <laughs> people are gonna watch them do it, right? Like, what, what? Yeah. Tell me, tell me about that, man. I'm super, super psyched to hear. Sure. So I'll, I'll back up a little bit. In the late '90s, um, I had started a company with uh, a colleague that was kind of a technology consulting and development business. Yeah. So we would help. Um, you you would help. Your camera's shaking a little bit. Uh, oh. Yeah, so just don't tap in and, and do that. So yeah. that's, that's, gotcha. I'll, I'll never tell you what to do ever again, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's take another shot. You know, <laughs> Not you know you I always take your advice as it relates to these kind of things. <laughs> um, no, so late 90s, basically, I started a company um, with a colleague that I worked with. So prior to that, I worked in finance, um, colleague of mine, and I started a technology business kind of mid-90s. Um, as the internet was first taking off. And at the time, it was before broadband. It was still AOL dial-up and all those things. And the cable companies and telephone companies were just starting to roll out broadband. So our company um, kind of helped them create the first broadband experiences for people that would help them uh, you know, sell broadband. And it was pretty successful. We designed a lot of the portals and systems and did a lot of early video testing and things like that. And um, Sundance and I were already friends. He joined as kind of the third amigo in mm -hmm. that scenario. Um, and so we built that business for several years. And then at one point in 2002, um, we had an opportunity. We had raised a little bit of money from some kind of cool strategic um, investors. Mm -hmm. And the business was going well all the way through the dot-com crash and 9-11 and all that kind of stuff, which is all crazy because we were based in New York City, obviously. Um, and we kind of, we were doing well, we were kind of getting tired of the business. There was a lot of travel to Europe, we were doing all this kind of stuff, and it, and it was interesting, but wasn't our passion. Um, so we had an opportunity to sort of buy everything out and um, make a little bit of money in the process and kind of do a, a slow and responsible shutdown of that business. Um, and we did it, and we wound up with some money in our pocket for the first time in either of our lives. Um, and so we took the summer off. Well, I don't want to say we took the summer off. We just stopped working. We yeah. didn't have a plan. Um, and we stopped working. And so we did what normal guys do. I think we were maybe 28 at the time, something like that. Sundays and I, I don't know if anybody knows. Sundays and I are six weeks apart. We were born six weeks apart. Um, uh, he's the younger, stupider one. But no, <laughs> how, how, did you, how did you guys meet? Uh, that's a whole other podcast, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save it then. Brief story was we we uh, we met at a party, um, actually at the famous Chelsea Hotel, where I don't know if you know the stories of Chelsea Hotel, really famous place. We actually met, uh, I think we were in the apartment where Jimi Hendrix used to live, but it's where like lots of famous people from the 60s live there. It's where Sid Vicious killed his girlfriend, Nancy Spongin from the Sex Pistols. Really famous place in New York City. Um, we met there uh, at a big party. Save the rest for another thing. Yes, that's please. Where we met. All right, got it, got it, got it. How old uh, were you guys when you? How old were you guys? We, were you guys partying? When we met, we were oh god, I don't know, twenty three, maybe something like that. That's crazy. Okay, okay. So <laughs> six years later, you guys come together and you guys. He yeah, so we worked together. Me. Yeah, we knew each other for a few years, and we started working together on this other company. Um, then we both. You know, we, we had some money in our pocket for the first time. We were kind of late 20s. 
Uh, I mean, we did what any knuckleheads like us would do. We went to a lot of Yankees games and we started playing Halo a lot. And we Sundance lived um, in at night. We we're going out because we didn't have jobs. We didn't have to wake up. So it, in New York City, you can go out till four in the morning every night of the week, any day of the year. So you um, did. We, we did. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. Yeah. Uh, and and actually, one of the clubs that we would go to a lot was under a bridge in Chinatown, and it was called Fun. And the VIP room was up up a tall flight, like a flight and a, half, a story and a half up in the air over the bar and the dance floor. And the owner had set up a PlayStation with a projector and we used to play Tekken mm-hmm. in the VIP room that was um, projected across the dance floor onto the wall on the other side of the dance floor. So yeah. like all these cool New York people would be partying at this underground club and hot girls dancing and everything like that. And the two of us idiots were sitting there playing Tekken in the VIP room. Yeah. <laughs> So, and then we would go back to Sundance's apartment, um, which was nearby in Tribeca. And he had um, a couple of roommates and a couple of people that lived down the hall who were like young investment bankers and um, finance bros, as we call them in New York City. And we would kind of hustle them in Halo games. So we bet on, you know, we invite people over, bet on Halo matches, 2v2s and 4v4s. And we would throw a couple of games to let these guys think they were sandbag them. Then take all their money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were doing that. We were going to Yankees games. Um, and it was a great summer. It was a, it was the first summer, I think, since I was like 13 that I didn't have to work all summer. So that was really good. And didn't have a job. And, yep. you know, had enough to pay the rent. And then probably by like late August, uh, as baseball season was sort of starting to wrap up, I looked at Sundays and I was like, you know, we made like take the summer off money, not retire at 28 money. Yeah. So either we got to get jobs, which neither of us are very good at, or, um, you know, we should figure out something to do. And, and it was conversation literally we were having while sitting at Yankee stadium or playing halo that kind of led to the initial concept for MLG. And how, how, how did that like the, so it, you had well, to have known that there was competition somewhere, right? Like it, was, it, it wasn't, yeah. Like- we were well. We were competing, right? And and keep in mind, our whole world of growing up as '80s kids was, um, you know, arcades and Atari yep. and gaming as a sort of solitary thing. It was always social because you're playing with other people around, even mm-hmm. if you were at the arcade. But you're playing against the, the game, not against somebody else. And so, when I was in college, was the first time I started playing things like Doom and then Quake. Um, I was not hardcore into it at all. It was just sort of fun because I played games. I was probably playing a lot more Sega hockey than any of those games. Mm-hmm. Sundance too. We went to different colleges. But um, when we met afterwards, actually, I didn't say this, but when I walked into the party at the Chelsea Hotel, there was a guy sitting on a couch with pink hair, hair and a bunch of earrings playing Tekken. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe it was Mortal Kombat. I forget what it was. But it was some, some guy Fighting playing a game. game. All these other cool people were like artsy people, you know. There's a guy playing guitar in the corner, and and all these cool people talking about cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, and one guy sitting by himself on a couch playing a video game. So I, of course, after I said hi to everybody, I just walked over and I was like, "You got other sticks?" Yeah. <laughs> so that was it. And then and then um, we, you know, because we were competing, and we said, "Hey, maybe we should think about trying to get into the video game industry. We should start a business in that." but I don't want to make a game. That's really hard. We don't have any idea how to do that. Yeah. Um, and it's hit driven. It's not a great business. Um, I don't really, there is, there was nobody at the time. There was no video game industry in New York at the time. Really the, the um, rockstar guys were just starting GTA. 
Um, so they existed, but that was really it. We didn't really want to go in that part of the business. We didn't want to sell video games. Um, so we thought like, is there a way to create a business out of this competition, right? Yeah. Versus us just going around trying to hustle people. And the, the one thing that we did is we, as we thought we were hot shit and getting better competitively, we went online and that was before Xbox Live. But, you you know, the Xbox originally had a Ethernet port in it. So yeah. you were able to like trick it into, you just PT top tunneling software to kind of trick it into thinking, I think it was called Xbox Connect. And there was a couple of these things, GameSpy, some other mm-hmm. And you could sort of play online. And so we started to play with people online and then we went and message boards and we realized, you know, there's already competitions happening and tournaments and that, but they were like very small like colleges and stuff like that. So we started talking to a bunch of these kids online. We found out there was this crew of unbelievable players from uh, like Texas and Kansas. And um, they were uh, the original sort of dream team of esports in America. It was Darkman. I don't know if you remember him. He was like the greatest Halo player of all time. Darkman, Zios, Alex, and Shiz mm-hmm. were the guys. Um, so they happened to be. Uh, we, we reach out and a bunch of people told them, told us they were the best in the world. We started talking to them. They happened to be coming to a tournament that was being run at, in like the basement of a holiday inn near Atlantic city. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we tried to find the guys that were running the tournament. We did, they invited us to come down. We went down, we met with the team, we saw the tournament and it was really those old school days where everybody brought their own TV and their own Xbox. And just threw like 50 bucks into a pool mm-hmm. and then the organizers put it together uh the organizer of that tournament was john nelson also known as anakin who eventually became the head of league operations at mlg and is now the commissioner of apex at ea um so we went down there uh met the team and we is sundance and i so we rented a limo we had a limo driver drivers down there oh, of course <laughs> picked up these guys, we brought them back, you know, from North Texas and Kansas, and we brought them back uh, to New York City. And I don't think they'd ever seen a building more than four stories high. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, took them out for steaks. And we were like, hey, you know, we're not sure what we're going to do here. But you know, you guys seem great. We, we love this whole competition. We think we could turn it into a sport. Why don't we? Why don't we be your managers? Okay, so we signed management deals with them. I got them a sponsor of some backpack company that was trying to create backpacks for, for gamers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we started to realize we could, you know, we should actually run these tournaments because there was no funding behind it. There was no sort of, it was just sort of one-off kind of things. Uh, so then I started studying um, business models for how sports leagues started. And the closest one looked like NASCAR because it was a situation where, um, the France family, Big Bill France, really started NASCAR. He, there was dirt tracks all over the southeast, and people would just drive their, their souped-up regular cars. That's why it's called stock car racing. They would drive their regular cars up to these tracks. The tracks all had different rules. The owners were separate. There was no real league or anything like that. So Big Bill went around to all of these track owners and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make more money for all of us by organizing this into a, a circuit. I'll sell sponsorships and then media rights, and we're all going to make a lot of money. But so you guys, you guys, you guys were already talking about media rights in 2005, Two. 2002? Yeah. Jesus. Okay. I was 22. <laughs> I was still at Washington Mutual or Long Beach Mortgage uh, yeah. closing mortgages out. And this thing that 
I would eventually be a big part of had already started. All right, yeah. so so go on. <laughs> I just want to put uh, it. I just want to put it into perspective that even though you're somewhere, somebody out there is already building something that you're going to benefit from, which is why it's always super important to make sure that you pay dues, uh, pay, pay your respects at least, right? Where 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 they're due. Um, so you know, while while I have you, thank you, man. Thank you. That's true. All right, so continue on. Pardon the interruption. Yeah, no, that's good. So, yeah. Anyway, that the NASCAR model was interesting because you know what I realized right away was the the playing field of this is the games and the game. Somebody owns the games, right? Basketball, baseball, football. Those are public domain. You can, you and I can go start a football league tomorrow if we want. Uh, nobody can stop us from doing that. Nobody owns the game of football, but somebody owned Halo, and it happened to be this giant company called Microsoft. Um, and so we had to figure out like what's the model. It doesn't really work as NBA or NFL because you got the game. That was why we went to NASCAR because the France the France's big build. You didn't own any of the tracks. You didn't own any of the teams. Nobody owned racing. So the playing field was owned by a bunch of individual guys who owned tracks. Um, I think they owned a couple, but not enough to make a league out of it. But he just sort of convinced everybody that if you organize it and commercialize it, you can make everybody benefits and you make money. So that was kind of the model that we followed from the from 2002, actually. Okay. Um, the original idea was, hey, let's organize this. We want it to be a league, but it can't be like the NBA. Let's go with NASCAR first. So we created, eventually in 2003, we created the idea for the MLG Pro Circuit. Um, and then we decided to, we ran our first competition, I guess, late 2003 in New York City mm -hmm. um, at, at a cyber cafe. Yeah, those there was a couple of them in New York City at the time, um, and it was amazing. Like people flew in from all over the country. Uh, those guys, you know, Darkman and those guys were there. Um, it was where I met Zena for the first time and her brothers. Zena was twelve, so I don't know if you're listeners yeah, know who Zena is, but okay. Um, so. You know, it was kind of interesting thing. Operationally, it was a freaking disaster. We didn't know what we were doing at all. Uh, and but everybody had fun. You know, we we put up ten grand in our own money for prizes, and and people loved it. And and there was a line out the door, and I was like, all right, we don't know how to do this yet, but we how can much figure that you, part out. How much were you guys charging for tickets to get in? Not for team passes. That's a good question. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't remember. Bucks. Oh, not bad. Yeah. 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 Um. And we invited a lot of people for free, obviously, because we wanted to have the big names there and that kind of stuff. And we had Halo, Madden, Gran Turismo, and maybe Mortal Kombat. One fighting game, too. Yeah. Did it, did um, it make it easier to have multi-games? That way it didn't, didn't seem like you're, it's only a Microsoft game that you're doing. No, it's like Capcom and this and the other. Yeah, okay. it did. It, it made more sense, too, to everybody. It kind of, at that time... And for many years later, that model was really cool because you're getting all these different gamers together. And, you know, obviously the kind of people that play Gran Turismo don't play Halo, at yeah. least not competitively. They might play it for fun. There's a little bit but of crackling. Cool Sorry. We're, cool to get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool to get all that together. It's cool to see all those different people together. Um, on the business side, that also meant we got cease and desist letters from multiple game publishers. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't as easy. Okay. And <laughs> it how, wasn't easy. How, how was it? How? How were, were you able to explain that? Because obviously, like I have this this thing that I always say that you know developers set out to create a piece of artwork. We are the ones that turn it into a sport. 
right? Was it was it hard yeah. for you to uh, that early on to to explain to them is like, yeah, there's this like massive, the, there's this massive want for competition on yeah. your game. Like, how how were how how do you explain that to somebody? Like, wait, why? So here is the interesting thing to me always at the very early days. Everybody who worked in the video game industry was was either mad about us doing this or completely dismissive. They were just like, makes no sense. We don't know what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, we don't care what you do, you kids, you weirdos. Like, yeah. go do your thing. Um, the other hand, someone were like, we don't know what it is. We don't like it. Stop. Um, the only people that really understood right away what we were trying to do were actually people from the sports media world, which is a big part of New York, right? ESPN's really located here. They're, they're mostly right up, you know, right outside the city in Connecticut. But mm -hmm. ESPN, all the big networks have big sports. You know, this again, this is the early 2000s, not today's world. So NBC Sports, CBS Sports, these were huge, huge, iconic things. Um, and the guy who was, we, we met a few people as we were trying to raise money for this. We were talking to different people. Yeah. Um, we we threw a few connections met a guy who was retired as the president of cbs sports so he had been president of cbs sports for 20 years icon guy and he was you know older guy looking around to help help young entrepreneurs out he was probably i don't know 70 at the time something like that his name's neil pilson great guy um he said i explained it he said i've never played a video game my kids have never played a video game i've seen my grandkids play some video games I don't know anything else about it. I said, here's the deal. We have teams. We run a circuit. Teams compete against each other in a video game. And then there's a bracket and like that. And he's like, who are these kids? I was like, they're, you know, young kids, 16 to 20 something. And he's like, that's a sport. And I said, yeah. He said, can you broadcast it? I said, of course we can. You got, you have the game. You have this amazing playing field, which is the game. But then you have these kids and the storylines and everything. And he said, uh, that's amazing. I, 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 why doesn't this exist already? And I was like, I don't know, but we're going to, we're going to do it. And he yeah. said, well, what's it called? And I said, we call it major league gaming. And he's like, of course no, you I do. love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that, you know, and that happened a lot. I don't, you know, I know everybody, you know, for, for probably a decade and a half later, I always used to hear, when is this going to be on TV? You guys should really talk to the networks. Like our, our first advisory board member was the former president of CBS sports. One of our first meetings ever was with ESPN Everybody in the sports world has gotten it for the longest time ever. Yeah. But it didn't really make it to TV that often because programmatically it just didn't really fit with, you know, they, TV guys didn't think it would get a big enough audience on TV. Yeah. They didn't dislike the sport. They just didn't see it as a TV thing. Yeah. Well, um, the, the, the thing there too, though, is that unlike traditional sports, you're looking at this thing where it's like this is going to be a 90-minute program. Right mm -hmm. with with esports, it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, twelve hour yeah. days. Yeah. So it would have been impossible to do that. It it, it would. I mean, it's it's possible. You know, you can run the the championship game or whatever. But yeah. the 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 actual tournament, which I think is what makes esports esports, like the that the, that bracket sort of uh, yeah. event, that is what makes it exciting. That's what makes the storylines for every yeah. weekend different. So. It was, it was not obvious how to turn that into a two-hour program, no. right? Um, but everybody kind of got it very early on in the sports world, not, not in the video game world. Um, after we had that first kind of operational disaster, but stroke of genius kind of, this is going to work. Because like if, you, if you're first time putting on event, an event or, or releasing a product as a new company, 
you have kids flying in from all over the country to pay you 20 bucks to participate in it. That's a very good indication you're onto something. Yeah, and so yeah. that's what we did. And then shortly thereafter, we decided to announce that we were going to do uh, a 12 city tour. And again, following the NASCAR circuit model. Yeah. We, an- we announced it. We announced all the cities. I think we announced some of the dates or at least months when we were going to have them. Yeah. We hadn't even bothered to call, find out where those things were going to yeah. be or anything like that. All we knew is we we're going to do the first one in uh, Philadelphia because we called a convention center or something like that. We got some room booked. And then shortly after we made that announcement, Sundance got contacted online by some kid named Adam Apicella from somewhere in the middle of Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, which led to a conversation. And Sundance came to me and he's like, hey, look, this kid's, you know, sounds interesting. They've been running tournaments. He's like a little bit more of an adult as a kid. He's already out of college. He's a real guy. He has a job. Um, so we had him interesting. I I was like, well, let's bring him to New York. But we didn't have like, I, you know, he wasn't in, Adam wasn't in Columbus at the time. He was where he grew up, which is kind of close to the border of West Virginia. And I was like, I don't know if there are any airports. It sounds like it's going to be expensive to fly him here. So I'm just buying a train ticket. Yeah. So we bought, he took like an 11 hour train ride from the middle of Ohio to New York city. Uh, we had a meeting with him and he said, you know, I'm planning to run a tournament in uh pittsburgh you guys are going to do one in philly why don't we just collaborate so we did that we kind of put it all together he he came in and with his guys um one of them being chris puckett um helped to organize the whole thing and we ran a much more successful tournament with hundreds of teams Uh um, right out of the gate so that was how the what you guys know as mlg that's how it started to take shape that's crazy. Uh, look, I've heard this story three times, and this is why I wanted to hear from you. Cause I, I've, I've always been a fan of history, right? Like everything everything that happens sort of has this ripple effect that will just echo in eternity because every single ripple would just create another one, another one, and an infinite amount of possibilities, right? I, it, one yep. might run into a branch, and then it becomes a droplet, and yeah, I could go down the, the, the imaginary road. But it sure. is it, for me, it's always been super important. And then I always say this, one of the main reasons that I do this uh, is because I want to sort of tabulate or sort of archive moments, present moments that in the future are going to be history, right? I want yeah. I want my podcast to be a source of of uh, of information that people are going to study in the future. Whenever uh, you see people going to college to do sports media and sports media rights and sports <clears throat> anything. Yeah. You always go there and you study the NFL, how it was built, how Jerry got the deal of a lifetime by creating his own merch and, you know, not going along with the league, buying that those rights. You know, so so they study all this. So I know that yeah. they, the same study is going to happen in esports. So sure. that's why I find it super important. And it's interesting to me, obviously, to hear what my friends were doing before they were my friends. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that that's where we're at right now. So uh, for, for the time, let me, let me take a quick break to give a shout out to the sponsors and then we'll return and then we'll we'll sort of pick it up a little bit you know, further. You know, time you know I'm always in favor of a, of a break for the sponsors. Yes, I do know that for <laughs> sure. All right. So just give me a second. Let me give a, a, the sponsors a quick shout out. Uh, this week, we have a brand new sponsor, sponsor of the Eavesdrop Podcast. I do ask every single one of you uh, to give them a thanks. If you ever come across any of their posts on any social media, tell them that the Eavesdrop family people sent you over. Hex said thank you, okay? Because if you guys know me, I like to get out of bed. I like to take a shower, and then immediately I want my hair to not look as though I try to do something fancy with it. I just want it to look natural. I want it to have a matte look that holds firm throughout the entire day, something that says because... 
something that says, hey, I'm here to play because this is this is why, right? Your hair says a lot about you. And with this pomade, with this Old Spice Spiffy pomade, it can say all the right things without you having to say them for yourself. It just does that automatically. It's like a walk-in advertisement that says, hey, I'm someone important, someone that you need to meet, someone that you want to strike a deal with, someone that you are going to want to do a podcast with and some content with, play some video games with. That's the guy. That's him. He cares about his appearance, so why wouldn't he care about everything else that he does in his daily life? Okay, so medium hold, matte finish for a clean cut, natural look. It looks super versatile. You can go anywhere with this hairstyle, right? So if you are like me, why don't you give this a shot? All the information will be listed down in the description down below. And today I want to say thank you very much for them. Step in bug and I hope they come back. Okay, and you guys are going to help me do that by saying thank you every single time. Because Old Spice has been around for a very long time in the gaming community. And now they have stepped up and gone into the hex quarters to thank us for doing what we do so i'm very thankful for them uh stepping up and uh and sponsoring the podcast thank you very much hope to see you guys again the next sponsor for this week is going to be none other than doordash between the never-ending laundry cycles and incoming emails you've got plenty on your to-do list give yourself one less thing to worry about and let doordash take care of your next meal especially in this day and age especially in the current situation that we're with, if, if, if there was ever a time for you to support your local restaurants, if there was ever a time for you to be a good member of society and community and support the local restaurants, support, support the people that are supporting themselves by working for DoorDash, this is the opportunity to do so. Now, DoorDash has been around the Eavesdrop podcast for close to 13 weeks. One of my favorite sponsors because I use it on a daily basis, right? Whether it's Firehouse Subs from here, whether I'm ordering Chipotle for all the boys when they're here recording all the contents or, or having their matches, whether I'm ordering North Italia from down the street, right, for my family and I, I use DoorDash, right? Because why go out and, you know, explore the world when you can just order it uh, for, for yourself, right? DoorDash is the application that brings food to you when you're craving it, what you're craving, right to your door, Ordering is easy. You open the DoorDash application, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside of your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. I use it. You should use it. We should all be responsible, and we're going to get through this together. With over 300,000 partners in the U.S., Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can support your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery. That's a fact. Uh, just open DoorDash application, select your favorite local restaurant, and your food will come to you and be left at the front of your door. Okay, we have a little table on the side of ours, so that's where they drop it off. We go outside. Once they leave, safely get, they get in the car. I go outside. I grab the food, bring it to the kitchen. Throw a fry at Henry. Throw a fry at Benji. They eat the fry and everybody's happy. And right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more and zero delivery fees for the first month when you download the DoorDash application and enter code eavesdrop. That's E-A-V-E-S-D-R-O-P. That's $5 off your first order and zero delivery fees for a month when you download the DoorDash application in the application store and enter code eavesdrop. Don't forget, that's code E-A-V-E-S-D-R-O-P for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. So thank you very much to both of them. Thank you very much to Old Spice and, of course, DoorDash. Back to you, Hex, with Mike, or me with Mike. You know what I'm saying. So, yeah, huge shout-out to both Old Spice and DoorDash, obviously making everything happen the way that they do. Uh, 
I'm uh so have you been using a lot of DoorDash while while you're there? Obviously, or how do you get your food? How do you get your nutrients? Do you use Instacart? Uh, yeah, so well, it, we have a local place here in New York um, called Fresh Direct and and Food Kit. So that's what I usually use because I don't, you know, there's a Whole Foods a couple blocks away too. I go to every once in a while, but it's been tough actually. Some of those things are just coming back online. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, for the first like five weeks, we were afraid of even ordering food. Yeah. So I was just uh, doing bulk grocery deliveries and things like that. Uh, all right. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to the year 2010, uh, December or November, November or December of 2010, about five miles down the road this way. There mm-hmm. is an MLG event at the Hilton Anatole here in Dallas, Texas. Uh, yeah. It is my first it was it was me and my old team's first entering the competitive scene. I walk in and I was in absolute awe. I went there with uh, with a couple of uh, old teammates uh, and my brother. Right, my brother was always with us at that in, yeah. in those days because he was one of the the, the early ones. Uh, that was the first time I met Hasbro. That was the first time I met Fwiz. That was the first time I met uh, Ego. Uh, and I was just enamored by everything. Obviously, Call of Duty had such a tiny little little sort of booth. Not even a booth. It was just that. <laughs> you see the back of that. That was the gaming setup for for uh, for Call of Duty back there. And then you had a main stage. Obviously, you had StarCraft, which at the time was like the the esport, right? And, yeah. Um, and 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 to me, as I walked in there, I, I got it immediately, right? Like uh, what I envisioned, well, because obviously I, I I didn't start out the way the Hasbro did. Hasbro started with competition, 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 where yeah. I started with gaming, entertainment, gaming, entertainment, gaming, entertainment, sure. and I'm like, boom, here's another thing that we can create content on. Let's go do that. When I walked in there, I immediately saw what I had envisioned something like that being. And at, at that point, there was really a limited amount of outlets that would, you know, show us what, what an MLG event was about. Um, there was the the usual montage from uh, from Oz uh, that, that he would create at, at the events. Uh, all of the old Astro stuff that, that was created. All of the old uh, Steel Series, I think, at, at some point was creating those sort of documentaries. But as, as soon as I walked in there, I saw my future. I saw what I was going to be doing forever i knew that at, at that moment in life I, I knew that there was nothing else that i was going to do i had already decided that i was going to do video games forever right but when yeah. i saw the competition aspect of it being the competitive person that i am i immediately saw what my future was going to be because i love the scene i love the the smell of just gamer you know what i mean you know exactly <laughs> what i'm talking about and and uh and and i remember clearly right i, I walk in and then I see, I don't think I, up until that point, I don't think I had had any contact with neither you or, or Sonny or, or Adam for that, for that point, for that matter. Uh, mm-hmm. But I walk in and I saw Fwiz and I'm like, yo, and he's like, we followed each other on Twitters and, 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 and Twitters with an S. We followed each other on each other on Twitter. And, uh, yeah. and I'm like, yo, what's up? What's my VIP pass? And he's like, oh, dude, I was, cause he was bullshitting. Ryan, Ryan bullshit. Uh, Come on, not him, right? Because uh, he told me, I'm like, yo, you, you. I mean, he's like, yeah, I'm commentating the the Call of Duty stuff with Hasbro. I'm like, yo, can you give me a VIP pass? And then he's like, yeah, I got you. I'm walking down the the, the hotel, and then I see him, yeah. and I'm like, yo, where's my VIP pass? He's like, oh, dude, we ran out, we ran out. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, mother, mother, right? Anyway, he's like, yo, I'm like, I'm like, yo, give me a tour of this thing, like, like, show me yeah. around. Um, and I walk in, and he's giving me, he's like, this is where the Challengers thing is, and this is that, this is that. And this was like towards the end of day one, right? Where yeah. where everybody had already the, the players were almost done playing, and and I was just walking around with with that with with him. 
and we're walking and he's like he's like yeah that's Sundance and then he's like the guy right there with the with the white blazer that smells like money that's Sepsa and I'm like <laughs> I'm like I'm like all right and I, I remember seeing you and uh and, and I'll leave it at that I won't say who you were, <laughs> I won't say who you were with right or how or how great it, you know that looked uh but but I saw him I'm like man and and surely like you walk by you say hi to him and I look at you and I'm like I'm like I want to be that dude one day you know what I mean I'm like I gotta be that guy one day but I remember clearly the first time I saw you because uh Fuiz obviously hyped you up uh and and he's like yeah this is this is uh the guy that smells like my that's michael Sepsa, right i was like oh shit and then immediately i'm like who who are these people and i started looking into it i'm like i'm like okay because obviously as a student of the game i had to know who the who the players were who the main players sure. were uh and how to become a main player so that was the first encounter that i ever i ever had with you and from there i want to go into the difficulties right of of what it was like back then because at some point or another, you were able to run uh, League of Legends tournaments and then you were able to yep. run uh, StarCraft and this, that, and the other. And then at one point, for some reason, whatever reason, and, and this sucks for everybody, and I mean everybody, this sucks for everybody in esports. The worst thing that ever happened to esports was when every developer got, I don't know if jealous is the word, but got self-conscious enough to where they said, I can't have my game being featured next to another game, right? So right. this sort of community that i fell in love with immediately as soon as i stepped into that place and i saw my future what it was going to be like i yeah. it, it got taken away league of legends said we're going to run our own tournaments mm -hmm. right they, they and then they go off and do their own tournaments. so now no more league of legends alongside starcraft alongside halo alongside uh super smash brothers and at the time it was and i know you remember this obviously you were there but uh for those who were not lucky enough and who weren't blessed enough to experience this day you would walk in and at some point or another, you would hear League of Legends just go off. And I'm talking about, you, you picture a, a warehouse, right? A massive warehouse with a massive TV uh, uh, theater screen and then a row of, of, of bleachers or, or seats. And then mm -hmm. on the next, on the next uh, column, you will see the same thing, but for StarCraft and then blah, blah, blah. But at some point, you would get battles between the fans where yeah. they would scream. And then I think it was... Tastosis, tasteless and artosis, who would be like, yeah. you guys are going to get League of Legends. Do you let League of Legends fans be louder than you? I know we're not. And then StarCraft would be like, Pah! an explosion. And then you would hear Puckett, are you guys going to let them? And then Halo, <laughs> Halo would be like, Pah! and then Call yeah. of Duty would be like, crickets? <laughs> <laughs> you hear one clap? <laughs> uh, it wasn't that bad. It was like 15 people. But nonetheless, like I I, I miss that part, man. Was, was that... Did that affect one the business that you guys were running? And obviously, it hurt from uh, we were building something cool, and now they're taking it away because they don't want to be featured on on another thing. Yeah, um, there's good and bad parts about that. So the the good parts were were that it was obviously gaining momentum, right? It was a real thing. Um, you know, the bad part was obviously it cramped our business model, and we were on a trajectory to grow something big. And then you're right, like the the publishers did not want to see their games, you know, look not as big. So for, especially for a game like Call of Duty, which at the time was huge, didn't want to look small in a room next to a, a startup game like League of Legends or something like that. So and is, um, that, is that what it was? Yeah. How old was League of Legends at that point when you guys were running those events? It was pretty new. Jesus. Uh, Imagine that. So, yeah, so so that's part of it. The other thing was, um, you know, look again, all the way back to the beginning, this is a world where, and, and this 
fact informs everything that happens in esports forever. You don't own the game. Somebody owns the game. It's not public domain. It's somebody's IP. And that was always a facet of our business. What we were trying to do was just get the spectacle of it so big and be so good at operating the league and creating the content that the publishers would see the value and just want to be a participant. And so what started happening was people with new games wanted to be there, but people with the established games didn't want their competitors of course, riding their coattails, yeah. right? And so, so it made sense, and and I got it. And in a lot of ways, still, esports is kind of the tail wagging the dog of a hundred and seventy billion dollar industry. You can't really risk the core business to develop something new that way. The other thing is, and I learned this more and more over the time, but I learned it right away too. Like I said to you early on, the video game industry executive had no idea what we were trying to do. Everybody in sports knew exactly what we were trying to do. It didn't matter if you were at a league or ESPN or anywhere. You, you got it right away. You might not see it as a TV product, but you got it. You understood what it was. Um, the once, once the sort of video game guys kind of got it, they really just thought of it as marketing. They didn't think of it as a media product because generally speaking, people that work at video game publishers and studios – don't really understand the media world and they don't understand the sports world, except as fans or yeah. athletes or whatever. Yeah. But, um, you know, and that's a really critical thing. And I, I grew up in New York. Like you understand media is the, well, Wall Street is, you know, an enormous part of New York city. Media is really bigger, right? So when you think of the global advertising industry, the global television, music, movie business, the, corporate headquarters of all of those things, including the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, they're all here. Um, and so that's why you see every, you know, every tech company that starts in California, including those like Twitch and YouTube, eventually build huge offices here that are just all the salespeople mm -hmm. who need to sell advertising because the money's here. Um, you get that. If you grow up in this space, and I was always a media fan. I grew up a TV kid in the 80s. I loved it. I loved sports. I played sports my whole life. So it was sort of innate to the way I think but it wasn't for them. Um, yeah. And I didn't understand as we were creating the business exactly how the video game studios and publishing worked. And we learned more and more over time about each other, I think. But that was sort of the key thing. So the good part of that was it meant that the publishers were seeing the value in all this activity. They may not think of it the same way that we did at the time, but they were at least seeing the value of it. And yeah. that started a process of esports becoming more and more important to the overall industry. Yeah. So that part was good. The bad part was the other side. But I also think that that was the start of this going from a sort of, you know, community driven thing to a professional sport. So it yeah. wasn't bad in all senses. So uh, obviously, uh, and this term was used in a, in a recent podcast, as recent as yesterday, uh, you know, building the flying the plane as you're building it, right, is, is, mm -hmm. is a very, very loosely, but heavily used term in esports because that is what we're doing right like we as yep. much as we understand the blueprint that sports has left there for us to utilize as much as media and sports media has left this blueprint for us to follow we sort yep. of have to reinvent that so we don't suffer the same uh sort of negatives that they do as they are already well established and been around for for hundreds of years right mm -hmm. uh sports wise um and when when you're when you're going through this thing, you have to sort of also have this entrepreneur mentality where you have the freedom to say, well, I don't have to do that. I can do this my, my own way. Where it would have been super easy for you guys to sort of continue, 
uh, right, where am I getting? Uh, I was going to say to, to continue pushing everything on, on YouTube, for example, or yeah. Justin to be back then, you guys decided to launch your own, uh, you know, MLG TV. But before that, at some point, you guys said, we, we, we can turn this into a UFC sort of thing where there's pay-per-view and people mm -hmm. will get a higher quality sort of uh, service by paying an extra 20 bucks or whatever. Standard definition, you're still good, but if you really yeah. want the, this extra thing, like you do that. What I loved about you and and uh, and Sonny and everything that you guys were doing with the behind the scenes partners that I don't even know about, um, I, I appreciated the fact that you guys were always trying something new to to better the thing. And because of that, when we first started talking, I always came to you guys with like these wild ass ideas. One of the ideas was like, why are we paying? Uh, what was it? What was that? The screen? The the Spreadshirt. You remember Spreadshirt.com? Like yeah. the okay, Spreadshirt.com is massive. Is this online uh, store where you can create your own T-shirts and this? Oh and that. yeah. yeah and yeah. I, I remember pitching to Sonny. I'm like, yo, you, we gotta stop giving people money that should stay in esports to grow the scene. We have to have an a store.mlg forward slash whatever team we were in back then or whatever, and we gotta yeah. sell the T-shirts. We gotta keep money that's being made in esports in esports and this, that, and the other. So I I was always with you guys in that in that regard where why hire external companies when we can keep everything in house and, and build it sure. the way that we want to build it build it the way that that you know we understand how everything else was built but we need to apply it we need to apply formats that we have to come up with right and and you see it nowadays I think sports traditional sports are learning more from esports than esports is learning from them all yeah. all 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 due respect obviously like we are following some processes that they've left but we are adjusting faster than they are because we're more nimble. We don't have the the, the political sort of struggles that they have because yep. of how many billionaires there are out there that are always right because they're billionaires. Of course we're right. We know how to fucking make money. We know what's up. Um, so I always appreciated that uh, from you guys. And and, and obviously from a, from a business perspective is my question, which just follows right now, is – I don't think it was a bad idea, MLG TV. I think that it was the right step in the right direction. Obviously, Twitch had its its footprint and and its uh and its pillar in esports the way that YouTube has its pillar in esports. But I think that you guys, you Machinima, were like in the prime position to sort of be this like third and fourth iteration of what video game entertainment could be from an entertainment standpoint. What was mm -hmm. the thought behind that? And you know, pretty much the, the MLG TV uh, era. Yeah. Yeah, um, it was pretty simple. Again, it goes back to thinking like a media person versus a tech person or a video game publishing person. Um, you know, I, I understood a lot of the advertising world and um, I had constant uh, conversations with the guys at Twitch and I just said, look, we're investing millions of dollars a year in creating content that we put on your platform and you don't pay us for it. You don't pay us rights fees. And we're okay with that because it's all new. You guys are new. It's cool. Mm -hmm. But we also need, um, you know, just the distribution isn't enough. We need to make money on this content. And so you got to increase your focus on monetization, on advertising, on different products, and potentially even, you know, I don't know that I want to spend millions of dollars on this beautiful, highly produced content with all the best players in the world and teams and all this stuff and have it be sitting right next to some kid you know, in his underwear, in his bedroom, eating Cheerios while he's playing a video game. Right. Like there was, you know, it wasn't streaming back then was not at the quality of streaming by creators today. Right. It's not, um, there was no, you know, 
made shot studio and hex quarters and all those things that you guys do today it didn't look great so and i don't really care i'm not making a judgment on the quality of the content but when i go to pepsi or coca-cola and i show them this and then they switch over and there's you know not doesn't look great right yeah. so it wasn't a great ad platform and the sort of san francisco bay area tech ethos has always been we don't care about money we just need to make it huge yeah and then somebody else will figure it out and and so that was the constant sort of problem with those guys and while we you know always got along and i still get along with them it, it became really tense it was like I, I can't do this anymore i can't invest millions of dollars we're never going to make any money back so we tried a few different things with them we had a much more sophisticated advertising business than i think anybody thought not mm -hmm. just in terms of sales but technology um and well to that i'll say then why did we get five pizza hut ads in a row sure because <laughs> they paid every time <laughs> i love it hey look one one thing you one thing you know very well the the way that i know very well the way that every single fan of esports knows very well that as long as the creator is getting paid to entertain and we don't have to sort of pay something unless we want to Yeah. That, that by all means, if Pizza Hut was the one that's going to come in and 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 bless everybody with the ability to make a living off of this thing, everybody would have supported that, right? So yeah. uh, the only reason yeah. I say that was because obviously, like that, that was like that happened. Yeah, that happened. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. They paid so, every single time, and people got paid for it. You know, and I'd rather have so, five of those than zero of the other ones. <laughs> so when we launched MLG TV, we actually built all the ad technology first, and then the streaming part. And mm -hmm. my idea was. Twitch is going to be amazing. Twitch would be like live YouTube. And then we could be HBO. Yeah. Right? We could be the premium tier. Yes. And then we would go to everybody else in esports, ESL and everybody else and say, look, yeah. Twitch is great. Twitch is great for building audience. But if you need to make money, we're building this whole thing around a commercial stack. And um, the reason you got five Pizza Hut ads at once was because it was – all algorithmic there are no people involved in running mm -hmm. those commercials it was just happening based on so so in the ad world and a lot of the stuff that you see on youtube basically there's a real-time constant auction going on all the time so programmatic some, programmatically somebody some algorithm is figuring out where to get the most money at that split second and how to put it in front of the right people mm -hmm. and so that sort of happened and whenever you're launching a new product like that with a relatively small audience you get too much concentration so you'll get limited number of advertisers buying at the same time. But the interesting thing about that, that I don't think a lot of people knew, is that for probably five years before that, I had been going to all the financial services products, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, all the automakers in Detroit, everybody. I was selling everybody, you know, you got to get in on this, be a sponsor. This is amazing. You can't believe what our audience is. And they'd be like, you're not on TV. It's not a sport. I don't really get it. Yeah. And the minute we launched MLG TV, Probably my biggest, um, I had I had two really interesting conversations. One was with um, a guy who ran GM Plantworks, which was like the, there's an entire business GM created just to be the advertising buyer for GM commercials. Um, that guy said to me, you know, I don't even think soccer is going to work in this country because our dance card's pretty full on sports and you guys are way after soccer. So I just don't really see it taking off. But maybe when you get it to TV sometime, you know, we'll buy some ads, some Chevy ads from you guys or whatever it was. And I was like, okay. You know, like the Chevy Volt or something like that. Yeah, the good ones. I was like, okay, yeah. 
He's like, come back in a couple of years when you grow up, maybe we'll figure it out. Well, like a year later, we launched MLG TV and I turned it on. All of a sudden, there's Chevy ads all over the place. And the reason was because algorithms don't have judgment on the type of content. It's if they're only eyeballs, measuring the yeah. audience. Yeah. You know, is there a 20 year old kid who wants to buy his first car on the other side of this content? Then we're putting the, the Volt ad in front of them. Yeah. And I got a report and it was like, I don't know how many thousands of Chevy ads ran in the first week of MLG TV. And I sent it to that guy and you know, he sort of ate some crow. I don't think we ever got any direct buys from them, but yeah. it was just proof point. That was the first time that I could prove. And it wasn't just GM. It was lots, you know, it was financial services, travel, like all these big advertising categories that I knew wanted to reach this audience. It was just, you know, the 40 or 50 something year old guy who was in charge of writing those checks didn't, didn't believe it. Didn't understand what we were talking about at that time. Online video wasn't anywhere near as big as it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All, all those kind of things were inhibiting factors, but you could prove it with technology. You could prove that the algorithms were much smarter than the people. Um, and eventually, you know, I had a pretty big sales staff with MLG TV, eventually started getting rid of all the sales staff too, because my algorithms were better sellers than the people. And on the buy side, the algorithms were smarter too. So that that all worked really well. And MLG TV was profitable in its first month, as as you were partly a beneficiary of that too. Yeah, remember. Um, but the problem with it was back to the rights issue, right? We didn't own a lot of that was Call of Duty. We we're trying to, I was trying to sort of prove that if we could get all the pro players and pro teams and the pro league all in one place, that would yeah. be a premium network with premium content. I yeah. didn't want you know, 20,000 other kids who just wanted to stream Call of Duty. I only wanted the best players that were pros and really creating cool content. And that worked really, really well. But at the end of the day, we didn't own Call of Duty. And we couldn't go fast enough to get other vertical kind of game communities on that platform. Yeah, And it wouldn't work, right? It was a little too competitive. Yeah, who knows if it would work. But but, but, I mean, it's not not as easy as... Uh, I'm going to start a game and there's going to be a competition. It's, not, it's going to be an eSport, right. right? Like nowadays, right. it's like everybody's catering to eSport and it's only competition and this and the other. Back yeah. then, it was just yeah. artists creating games that people play. Right. And and it was a difficult pitch. And, um, you know, obviously Twitch didn't like that we did that and created kind of a war and we had to go after people. But look, the other, I'm still very proud of MLG TV. One, because it was so profitable and did so well. But two, because it created the first tension in the marketplace where as you know the twitch guys had to come back after your your team your talent your guys and offer you money to move back to twitch yeah that's media rights yeah and so in and, a lot and, of ways you, it helped create the the market and you fast forward uh call it okay <laughs> so that's 2013 you fast forward seven years well no so fast forward six years and then you have a ninja mixer deal you know, yeah. that, that, that sort yeah. of, again, the ripple that I was talking about in the beginning of all this is like yeah. this, every single move that happens in esports is going to echo in eternity because somebody yeah. somewhere is going to continue to do that. Well, now, even more important than that, I think, I think Tyler met Jessica because she worked for us at an MLG event. Really? <laughs> I did not know that. She, yeah. That's so awesome, man. And and again, <laughs> like if, if you think about, if you think about. I don't know. I don't know if it was actually at an event, but yeah, I know. Yeah. he played, he played and she worked for us. So yeah. So you, what was cool about that, right? What was cool about that is that if you look at, I mean, think about the personalities that exist today. Think about the the movers and shakers that exist today. At some point or another, they had some dealings with you and, and MLG, 
right? Mm -hmm. Like it's like I, I'm I'm super proud of the fact that people who were in optic have now gone on to do incredible things, right? Yeah. One of your referees, who was then a VP at your company, who was a coach of mine, then was a team manager, uh, went on to be the head of gaming uh, and VR and AR at Google. Like if you if you think yeah. about like what, what we've been building and how we've been able to help everybody, it's it's nothing more than something you could be proud of for the rest of your life. If everything stopped today you would be able to say that that is the impact that you had in in, in situations like that. Um, yeah. and, and from a business standpoint, I, I I do sort of mirror a lot of the stuff. I take, obviously, your advice on, on everything. I call you. Any single time there's a big business decision that I make, you're one of the people that I call. You're one of the first two people that I call. You you know what I mean? Like, that's that's the, the sort of impact that you had on me, and I thank you for it. I always thank you for it. Um, one day I'll buy you something nice, and then you gotta buy me something nice too. So, you know, I, I I helped you a little bit too. But uh, if 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 you're looking at the space as you currently are, obviously still yep. a, a big mover and shaker. You, you you build MLG. You you have a, a successful exit. You send it over to to Activision, and then now you sort of have to you're sort of back in the wild, free to do whatever yep. you want. You accomplish yep. you accomplish something, right? You you you. If you stopped there and retired, you would have done more than the 99% of all humans will do in a lifetime. Create something that people benefit from. Create something that people are entertained by. Uh, you name it. So after that, you, you, you're you back in the wild. And instead of taking a seat back, going to the beach uh, in Miami, wearing the hat that you usually wear with that, you know, those flower, the little umbrella drinks, which is weird to me because of the way you drink. You know what I mean? Uh, what what uh, sort of business says do you see popping up like what what's what are spaces that need filling in the space right yeah. now well let me let me back up because the the um context for what we're doing now has a lot to do with what we did at activision um and you know back all the way back to the beginning when i said we we gravitated towards nascar as a business model that wasn't because that's the one i wanted that's because that's the one that was available yeah right um, I always had this desire and we started as early, I think it's 2008 or nine working with, uh, the same law firm that represents the NBA on how can we design a structure that's more like an NBA franchise system? Cause I've, one of the things I've always really firmly believed, and it's pretty much been hundred percent true over time. So it's almost never true at the time I say it first, it becomes true later. One of the things I always say, I think you've heard me say this is. We are not recreating the business of sports. We're just, if, if all we do as an industry and as a community is convince the world that people playing video games against each other is entertaining and as important as people playing football or golf or soccer or basketball or whatever it is, that's a huge accomplishment. We don't have to recreate the rest of it because somebody's already done that. It's been a hundred years. They've perfected the model. That model is going to change, right? One of the interesting things about esports is first big major sport that wasn't television natively it, it happened after the internet after mm -hmm. after youtube after those things so it's there's definitely differences but the reality is like we don't we're not recreating advertising we're not creating media rights we're not recreating anything and so that being the case i would always gravitate towards the strongest structure and business model mm -hmm. the strongest structure and business model in sports is exactly the one that the nfl and the nba use those are the two, think about this, two American-created sports that are largely only played here that have been exported around the world because of the power of the professional leagues behind them, mm -hmm. right, especially the NBA, yep. massively huge in China, huge all over the world. 
those are sports invented here, commercialized here. The leagues are formed here. The leagues effectively own those sports globally because of how powerful that structure was. Yeah. There's, there's nothing else that you can point me to. And I've had this, you know, debate with everybody in, in our world many, many times over. There's nothing you can point to that's more powerful than that in traditional sports. No. And so I always wanted that model. Yeah. And we could never get there, even though I tried with Activision way before. When we had MLGTA, we had Call of Duty, we were doing a great job. I was like, give me like 20 years of rights to this game. And they couldn't, do, you know, you can't give anybody. No. It's the golden goose. You can't do that. Um, so way before the acquisition, um, at one point I got a call from Bobby Kotick, the CEO of Activision Blizzard, who's kind of, a, you know, in, in my world, a legendary guy in the video game industry. I know most people like the, you know, the creators of the games. I love the business guys. Yeah. Um, Me Bobby's too. an incredible, yeah. <laughs> Bobby's an incredibly, uh, successful, uh, intelligent business guy. He's really just one of the top people in the world in my opinion and so it was amazing to be able to talk to him and eventually work with him but you know what he said right away was i you know our whole company thinks of what you guys do is sort of fan engagement and marketing i know it's a business i know there's a big business behind this if you can make it look anything like sports sports is a 600 billion dollar a year business um and i said oh i agree i just need your game i need to own the long-term rights to your game and he laughed a little bit (laughs) so we met we had a bunch of conversations um, and that led to them saying like, look, I, you know, I think if we can bring this in to Activision Blizzard, we have the opportunity to do what you want to do. And that eventually led to, I actually went over to Activision's first and created this new division with Bobby called, yeah. uh, media networks. But the idea was right away, how do we create an MBA like structure here? And so that's the first thing I did is start designing that blueprint. Um, then we did the acquisition, brought all the whole MLG team in, and that you know then sort of handed off the blueprint of that to the the guys at Blizzard, Nate especially, who ran with it and created the Overwatch League. But that was the important thing is once you brought together, and this is kind of business guy stuff, but there's a thing concept called a value chain in in business where if you think about like paper as a product, it starts with trees, and somebody moves the trees to a mill, the mill cuts the things up process it into pulp, the pulp gets shipped to the paper plant, the paper plant does this, the packaging guys, there's a whole chain. All of those are different companies. And I draw on it and then I sell it to somebody else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're the artist, you create some stuff on it. And there's, that's a value chain. If you think about esports, the hard part always in, in the, in the early MLG ESL world was MLG and ESL work didn't own any games. They don't have any long-term rights to any games. Really hard to create a solid, business model or a league structure without having the two things together so i said to bobby look like look either we're going to buy activision or you're going to have to buy us because you know these things have to they have to be the same thing in order for this to to work yeah um and that's what we did and so that you know what i'm really proud of there was um first of all almost everybody who's kind of like my era of esports thought i was well they always thought i was a little bit of the corporate suit in the room in this world because i wasn't i wasn't the gamer right i was the guy i was yeah. literally wearing the suit <laughs> uh, the white blazer yes with the I arm never, pen. <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't the uh i wasn't the guy that spent you know thousands of hours playing counter-strike i wasn't a former pro like astro or anything i was just whatever so and the european guys especially the esl guys didn't like the idea that we were going to create closed gardens like the nba you know systems like that so 
Twitch didn't like it. Nobody really loved it, but I was like, this is this is what's going to make this successful, and this will actually help the whole industry grow because now you have a stable platform at the pro level. It's not going anywhere. It's backed with lots of capital. There's a real business model behind it. It's going to grow. And so launching the Overwatch League is the first proof of concept of that was super powerful because we got it out the door and all the initial owners also owned baseball teams or NFL teams or NBA teams, which was amazing to see. Mm -hmm. And also it allowed you guys, a big part of the concern from the kind of, you know, OG world of esports, the the purest guys was, okay, even inside Activision Blizzard, the people who had been part of esports inside the company for a long time were like, this is going to basically push out the Hectors and Hastros of the world and all the other team organizations who are not going to be able to afford to buy into this type of system. And I said, you're totally missing the point. This is going to give them the opportunity. You guys have all, you weren't as much, but lots of the teams were trying to raise money for years before that, any kind of venture money or anything like that. And it was impossible, right? I'm sure you had some of those conversations. It wasn't a thing. Then you were like, okay, I can buy this asset. I own this thing. I own a piece of the IP rights to this league, this game. It's a real system. It's backed by a multi-billion dollar company. They're not going to let it go anywhere. So that happened. And then as you, you were a, a part of this and a beneficiary of this, but a lot of money came flowing into the system. Obviously, everything doesn't happen perfectly, right? Things break along the way and you you know, you know get some wins and some losses all the time, but more wins than losses um, for guys like you and me. And so I think that that's the important part. But what it really set up was that structure had so much permanence right out of the gate because of the amount of money and the type of people coming into the system. And then, you know, once that was sort of going out the door, I, I was like, you know, look, I'm, this is all I really wanted to do. I just wanted to have this thing happen and create it and, and see it, see it go. I don't, I'm not the kind of guy that wants to stick around and run this thing inside of a big company. Um, so I said to, to Bobby and, and um, the COO of the company at the time, I was like, you know, maybe maybe I should leave early, not not roll this whole thing out. And they said, well, we want you to stay, but we get it. You're an entrepreneur, not a big company guy. But there is one big thing to do, which is how do we put the whole commercial organization together and monetize the thing? How do we sell sponsors? How do we think about media rights? All that kind of stuff. So um, I then started building out that team. We had a little bit of it there. We started accelerating that process and we really approached the advertising and sponsorship market as here's the NBA version of what I've been selling you for the past 17 years. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing. And right out of the gate, it was wildly successful. And I think that's one of the things too, is, you know, my version of what makes things in esports successful has a lot more to do with proving out the commercial viability of it than anything else. Because I've seen over, over 18, 19 years in this space, I've seen a lot of things, a lot of good ideas go away because they were never commercially viable. And I've seen a lot of things sort of get along the bottom for years and years and years and sort of exist as like zombie things because they never get big because there's no money to reinvest. There's no structure behind it. There's no permanence. So having that permanence of the Overwatch League model, the franchise system that was city-based, and then seeing how commercially successful it was right out of the gate before the first game was even played. And everybody always criticizes Overwatch. It's got all these problems and not enough people play the game or watch the game or all this kind of stuff. It still makes more money than anything else still and it's because of the structure and if if that was successful then i thought okay we're going to do this multiple times inside activision blizzard the other big publishers are going to want to do this because they're going to want to control their ip and they're going to want to benefit if if bobby codex doing something you can be pretty sure there's billions of dollars that are going to come into that over time 
And most of the video game publishing industry believes that. So a lot of them started to look at that and follow it. And obviously Riot moved to franchising right after we announced the Overwatch League. Um, And the rest of the industry would, I thought, start to do that over the next several years. So as I was getting ready to leave Activision, um, I said, look, I'm going to invest in the New York team because I'm a New Yorker. And if I could have, you know, if I was a baseball fan 100 years ago, I would have invested in the Yankees. Now I just give them my money for my seat every year. <laughs> uh, but, you know, look, I, I knew the Wilpon family. They were amazing. They sort of bought into the whole vision. I wanted to be a part of that. And so that was good. It was a sort of me putting my money where my mouth was. But what I realized was there are no more MLGs to buy. And this is going to get bigger quicker. And it's not as easy as going finding a TV sports production company and say, go, go broadcast my Call of Duty event. Yeah. It's, it's very, very different. So there was going to be a lot of services and technology and it, what I just sort of loosely refer to as infrastructure that would be necessary for if all the publishers wanted to go big with esports and create leagues and really do the right thing, there's not enough resources out there for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And the resources that do exist are, are pretty small companies and big companies, especially big public companies. When they're making big bets, they want to make big bets with partners that are also big and institutional and have capital yeah. backing and those kind of things. And so the next phase to me in esports matched up with what I wanted to do, which is, okay, great. We, we kind of took care of the top end. There's a model for that now. I don't need to be there. It's going to happen. We sort of proved the issue. Now, how do we create all the other stuff that helps those things be successful and then creates the structures and ladders and everything else for what happens below the top tier pro leagues. Because still, even though you can be a, you can now get it, as you know, you got Huntsman earphones on right now. You guys pay people to play Call of Duty. They get a contract just like they were playing basketball in Chicago, right? Same same idea. Maybe not as much money yet, but it will be. Um, if If that's happening, what's the journey from, you know, seven, eight-year-old kid who's really good at the game to playing on the main stage at a big arena and that still hasn't been worked out right it's still if you're a really good seven or eight year old basketball player somebody can describe to you as a seven or eight year old exactly what your journey will be to madison square garden yeah you can't do that in this space yet and it's not going to be software that figures that out there's going to be a whole lot of infrastructure and complexity and capital and stuff like that that has to happen and i thought that there were multiple opportunities like that the other big one is just it's still most of the money being made on esports is not anywhere near representative of what the value of the audiences are. And almost all of that monetization happens human to human. And if you think back to MLG TV, that's how stuff scales, right? $80 billion a year is spent on television ads. There's not anywhere near that in the esports space. Not yet. Not yet. But, and look, that 80 billion, a lot of it is wasted because TV is a sort of, shotgun approach right billboards targeting yeah it's, radio it's, it's not newspaper great. for for many for 70 years it was the best way to advertise anything and to make a make a dent and to launch brands or presidential campaigns whatever it is it's still a great way to do that yeah. it's a mass it's a mass untargeted thing but it's not it's not the new world and so i think there's also a whole other world of kind of marketplaces and data management and things like that that will help the monetization thing yep. so first strategy was Hey, these big companies need a big company to work with to to design their esports leagues to help operate them to produce the content, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then um, the trickle down effect. Yeah, and I happen to know 
how to do all that. And Sundance and I, um, you know, so that was my background theory as I was walking out of Activision. And I started to play around with some of those ideas and talk to private equity funds and places like that. And, uh, you know, luckily I found some companies that we could do that with. And, and Adam was also wanting to leave his thing and start esports engine. And you know, it was yeah. a bunch of opportunities just came together. Um, so that's where we started. And then, uh, Sundance left Activision and then we got serious. And about a month later, we met a couple of guys who are now our partners, uh, Brian and Jason, who, mm-hmm. um, similarly were two guys that have been friends. They became entrepreneurs after working in corporate world for a little while. Um, but they come from a different background. They came from the background I started in actually, they, they were significantly more successful than I was in that world, but they, they came up in the finance world. So they started in private equity. They eventually, uh, Jason went on to become the CEO of a $17 billion fund of funds. And Brian was a portfolio manager at a big hedge fund. So they live, if you guys watch billions, that's, that was the world they were living in with, you know, less controversy and drama, but the real world of that. Yeah. Uh, and then they started a, um, financial technology company on their own and it became wildly successful and they sold it and they worked for a big company that acquired them for a little while. And we all just sort of met at the right time and they had been out looking for things to invest in and operate had nothing to do with esports. Somebody that they knew started talking to them about esports. They called another guy who was a movie producer at Sony. And the guy was like, Oh, you guys have to do this, but you know, I'll introduce you to some people. And I guess they went to LA they met with a bunch of agencies and people like that. And everybody kept saying to them, why are you guys out here talking to us? You live in New York. Why don't you just call Sepso and Sundance and figure this out? So we were connected that way. And, um, four of us just hit it off and there's great, it's been great for me too, because, um, you you're know, a builder. To, yeah. And, and now we have like real guys that we work with every day who know what they're doing and yeah. um, we're able to do stuff. And so, and also because of this, you know, who we are in this industry for whatever that's worth, lots of people who are big institutional investors looked at this and said, look, the combination of these kind of skill sets and your guys history in this industry and your connections and your able, your vision to be able to see where this is all going. This is a very investable thing. Um, about- so we were, how much did you guys raise? Eighty million dollars. Good. <laughs> I, I I have this idea that I want to run by you, <laughs> uh, man. That's so cool. So again, you know, to 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 wrap it all up, and I know that you you got to go. I got to go. Um, what are some of the things that are missing in this space that you see potential? I mean, if you're not already doing them or in the process of doing them, uh, yeah. Anything there that you see that's missing that that somebody out there can can sort of start working towards if they are looking to to move into the business side of the industry uh cafes right there's no internet cafes here or land centers uh, there's yeah. no you know like that that sort of thing is there anything out there that, that you see is when is, when is this podcast gonna air uh tomorrow okay yeah i think the <laughs> <laughs> announcement incoming right. uh yeah in a few weeks um I hope in a few weeks we'll see there's some deals that have to take place in between now and then um, we'll, we'll be making some announcements about moves into, you know, we're, we're in the production world, right? We bought, we, we helped Adam launch his company, Esports engine. We bought a, acquired a business called NGE that produced yep. the Fortnite world cup last year. Great guys. They have a huge studio in Burbank. We're looking at other opportunities to expand globally so that we can, we'd be one big global production yep. services and technology business. The next thing is kind of, how do you, how do you think about, um, 
organizing and monetizing the amateur systems around the world. And really that's opposite to the pro league thing, which really starts with the game publishers and how do you make that a business? This is more like, how do you provide that journey from the seven year old who's the really path to a pro. particular sport? Yeah. But that's, you know, all the things that we're going to do with Vindex are things that are capital intensive and operationally complex, meaning really tough, challenging businesses to create require a lot of capital and people that know what they're doing. Primarily because those are the big opportunities that yeah. exist in esports today, but also that's sort of our competitive advantage, right? We have we have real real business guys behind us. We have in girls. We have great um, assets from that perspective, and we can take on some of the big challenges. And yeah. they're they're not the flashy ones. They're not MLG and walking around with a cool suit or whatever I was doing, and whoever the girl was, I'm not sure, but. It's not that, right? It's not the Vince McMahon type of stuff anymore. This is more, how do you just build a big, powerful business that's that's valuable to the industry, valuable to the fans, to the players, valuable to the publishers, Mm -hmm. valuable to the Twitches and YouTubes of the world. Yeah. And really want to create all that connectivity and just do it professionally and at a big level. Yeah. So you you bring bring up McMahon. uh, uh, Wait, is that what you said? Yeah, right? Yeah, Vince Vince McMahon. If, If you look at the WWE... Right? Um, am I thinking of the right person? The WWE. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you look at the yeah. at, at the WWE, like they own, they don't own wrestling, but they own the WWE, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They don't necessarily own the wrestlers, but in some cases, they do own the names that they that they yeah. have. Um, why was? And I'm, I'm sure that this is something that ran through Bobby's mind through. Mm-hmm. Whoever's mind of just saying, you know what? Since I own the game, since I own the NBA, I should also own the Mavericks, the Bulls. The like, what? What? What do you think was the? Why didn't they? Or why hasn't it happened yet? Right? Why hasn't Bobby said, you know what? I want to own it all. You know, uh, this is. Uh, I want to own the Huntsman. I want to own this. I want to own that. And I want everything sure. to be just one one thing, uh, and just benefit in that. Uh, I I personally see that as something that's gonna happen in the future or something. It, Success is going to happen regardless, right? Because the eyeballs are there, and it's a, it's a grassroots movement that has turned into this massive Deku tree. If that makes mm-hmm. uh, any sense, shout out to Ocarina of uh, Ocarina of Life players. But um, that has to, at some point, be an option, right? For for everybody, not not just owners involved, but also the thing. And the the reason why you guys have been so successful is because you guys were two dudes that grew up in this grassroots movement and know what mm-hmm. it is. Now that you have the partnership that you guys have with uh, with your business partners, the uh, uh, the hedge funds dudes, that that and it's the, sort of the same the same reason that I went with Andy Miller, right? Like he comes from this this very business driven uh, sort of mentality where like business, 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 and he understands you know esports as what it is. But the, what makes sense for me is because I like you came up in this grassroots movement and made something of it. Um, yeah. So back to it. Do you think that that's that's something that's going to happen? Where any developer that owns uh, Riot owning uh, all these other teams and sort of obviously it's difficult because of you know TSM's massive, Cloud 9s massive, yeah. TL's massive, uh, Hundred Thieves massive, right? So if if yeah. if you take those, that that has to be an option. There has to be an opportunity that happens in the future if they choose to. Or no. We'll see. I th- yeah, I don't think the big ones will. I don't think the Riots and Activisions will because I think there's so much value in having those independent teams with mm-hmm. good management, you know, and don't forget the Activision model is like the NBA. It's, you know, so in Anbox in New York has become incredibly good at reaching fans in the New York market. They're really investing in that. They have email lists and they run events and they do a lot of really interesting stuff. 
that's really valuable to the league. And so there is, just like in the NBA, there's a value transference between the franchise owners and the league central body. The difference is obviously Activision owns the game, right? So that makes it a little bit weird. But we spent a lot of time figuring out how to make that structure work the right way. Um, I think to me, esports is not, you know, a lot of people throughout my career have always said it's kind of like, you know, basketball, football, hockey, esports. To me, it's basketball, football, hockey, motor racing, everything else. And then esports, Call of Duty, Counter-Strike, Valorant, Overwatch. It's a parallel universe of sport. And I imagine that every model in sports will have some application in esports. I just think like traditional sports, the biggest and most commercially successful will be the ones that have a franchise system closely linked to the NFL or the NBA. Amazing. Dude, I can sit here and talk to you and learn as much as I can from you on the business standpoint, obviously, like I deal with my certain uh, box of, of duties and responsibilities on a daily basis. And then I have my imagination that says, where's content going to be and all that. But uh, these business conversations is always a, a pleasure for me to to hear from you. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, now that, that the, that the you know, the people watching this podcast are watching this, where can they find you? And when are you starting your own podcast talking about that, about business? <laughs> You've been telling me to do that for years. So uh... it's a, it's a, it's a missing space. Right, this, it's it's a missing component to what it is. Everybody talks about entertainment. Everybody talks about personalities and everything, but nobody's talking yet. Nobody yet is talking about the behind the scenes, behind the curtain, infrastructure, uh, business yeah. processes, and thoughts that can go into theorems. I mean, you name it, right? Like this is something yeah. where Mike Sepso has like to fill that void in a sense. So, I took some of your advice. I'm busy, obviously, so it's always been hard for me to make time to do these kind of things. And some more creative, you know, I when I need to do something more creative i need time and space to think about it i'm not as i'm not as uh, much of an artist as you are but uh one of the things that i am doing so first of all if you want to get into that follow me on linkedin i'm going to start publishing more and more stuff through linkedin because that's i don't have i have a linkedin but I, I haven't logged into it no you guys are all twitter and instagram and youtube i'm yeah i'm uh you know i'm a business yep. guy but so, but so you know so am i i mean if yes you, you are right but i just you are, you are by the way you are a wildly successful business guy let's let's not screw around you've I, done incredibly well and i've always you. been proud of you proud to be your friend proud thank to help you, you. Thank you, but wow. is, is is LinkedIn somewhere where I should be? Because I, <laughs> what, yeah, what, what look, do I have? You got to be like one of the things I've always learned from you is you got to be where your audience is, and that's where you are. My audience is LinkedIn. Your yeah. audience is YouTube. I'm sure. So cool. Well, I'll help you if you help me. Done. <laughs> so I am gonna I'm gonna be publishing something probably in a couple of weeks, um, specific to meteorite. So I had an idea based on you, which was how do I bring in other people that are experts in different aspects of the traditional world or other parts yeah. of esports and sort of try to create some content that's helpful for the industry. Yeah. Um, you know, just using different models from different sports or the kind of, this kind of conversation, right. Yeah. Like talking about sports business models and league structures and things like that. So we have a upcoming topic around media rights that I'm going to publish in a couple of weeks. Yeah. That'll be the first one. Uh, for, for the amount of interviews that you do, for the amount of podcasts that you are invited to, like I just figured that by now I would have already been invited to your podcast to talk about. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I mean that, man. I think that there's there's definitely space on YouTube, space on, I mean, you name it where for a Sepso podcast on the business yeah. side of, of, of this thing uh, to happen. Should we call Fwiz uh, right now, or yeah, we should. Let's let's cut that deal now. I obviously uh, I charge above industry standard. Okay, so I'm looking yeah, in the 35 range, 35 percent range. Because yeah, uh, yeah. I also be involved anyway. But uh, I do appreciate it, man. I know that you're a busy guy, and and uh, I I can't 
stress enough to everybody how much you've impacted my life and how blessed I am to have you as a mentor or, or somebody that just lends an ear when I need uh, somebody to vent to and somebody to throw something back. Iron sharpens Thanks, iron. So I certainly there appreciate it. Thank you, man. Uh, this won't be the Thank last you. time. I do want to make uh, uh, another podcast when I have you and, and Sonny in the same room and then we, yeah. we get into the time where he pushed it through a wall and you threw, yes. you, you threw watermelon at him. How many yeah. suites in Las Vegas were ruined? People talk about <laughs> people talk about my brother Banks, you know, ruining some yeah. hotel rooms. Like, hey, no. like that, that's not yeah. nothing new we, around these here we parts. Did, we, we did that when he was in seventh grade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody, all of his information, uh, Twitter and all that stuff is going to be listed in the description down below. I want to thank, obviously, DoorDash and Old Spice uh, for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, and yeah, I'm gonna go use DoorDash tonight. I think I'm gonna hit yeah. Use DoorDash code tonight. use code eavesdrop as you've seen it. E A V E S R door P. Uh, as long as you spend more than fifteen dollars, and you're in New York, New York, so it's probably gonna be what Kick like it, yeah. like fifty dollars to start. So yeah. uh, I do appreciate it. Anyway, again, thank you, man. I appreciate thank you, Hector. And we'll Thanks see you guys me. later. Hit him with the music, Absolutely. man.